Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's a crisp evening in Cherokee country, 1889. This whole area will one day be absorbed into the state of Oklahoma. But for now... It's miles of low hills and lush plains untouched by the western expansion that's gone on around it. Horse hooves pad along a dirt road in the evening air, amplified by the vacuum of silence in this sanctuary of pre-colonial paradise. Bellstar, a 41-year-old, three-time married, proud southern woman, is heading home from a night of dinner and drinks with friends in the city. She enjoys the finer things in life from time to time, but she lives out here in the boonies off of U.S. soil for a reason. She may not look it, but she's one of the most famous outlaws in the country, but not by choice and not right now. Right now, she's just Belle. She loves these peaceful rides back through the endless plains. Her whole life has been dictated by other people's expectations. Out here, there's not a single soul to answer to for miles in either direction. She's completely alone. But wait, not tonight. There's someone coming up the road in the opposite direction. Who could that be? As the two horses cross paths, Belle recognizes a familiar face, someone she doesn't like. She continues down the road, cursing under her breath. What are they doing out here? As she does the math in her head, she begins to realize that this isn't a simple coincidence. As the little hairs in the back of her neck start to stand up, she flaps her reins in fear. Too late. The crack of gunfire splits the silent air, knocking Belle off of her horse. As the attacker approaches the wounded woman, holding a gun over her face, it's difficult to know what Belle Starr is thinking during her final moments on Earth. Beyond the terror, it's safe to say that there must have been pangs of annoyance. This was not supposed to be her life. Sure, you've probably heard her name in the same breath as Billy the Kid and Jesse James, but for the last 150 years, this supposed bandit queen has been portrayed as nothing short of a caricature, a two-dimensional gunslinging woman who dove headfirst into a reckless life of crime. That legend is parroted in books, TV, and film that romanticizes the folklore of that forgotten time. Yet no one has really taken the effort to spotlight the humanity of this complex person and supposed scoundrel. Is she what her glib legend suggests? Is she simply a product of her Wild West environment, a land before rules where frontier justice reigned supreme? Or was she a daughter, a wife, and a mother simply doing her best with the crummy card she was dealt, forced unwillingly into a criminal life? We can't tell you quite yet. The question remains, who killed Belle Starr? Either way, there's one thing for certain. On that fateful showdown in 1889, the only thing louder than the final shotgun blasts that broke the prairie stillness was something far more blaring. The sonic boom 
of a new legend born that would echo around the world for centuries. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Mirabelle Shirley is born in 1848 to John Shirley and Eliza Hatfield. Yes, those Hatfields of the infamous Hatfield vs. McCoy family feud that you're vaguely aware of even if you have no idea where you learned about it from. Her father, John, is a wheat, corn, and hog farmer, but he's also an upstart entrepreneur. And a few years after Bell is born, he sells the farm and moves everybody to Carthage, Missouri, the city. He invests in real estate, buying up an entire city block's worth of businesses in the town. He owns a stable, blacksmith, tavern, and hotel, the Shirley family is made in Carthage. From an early stage, Belle already finds herself encumbered by expectations placed on her, the burdens of being a proper young Southern lady in antebellum America. Throughout childhood, her parents put her on a strict regimen of piano lessons, English and Latin reading and writing classes, and all the other things expected of a young woman in this society. But she's already a little different. There are early signs of a rebellious spirit, she demands that her family call her by her middle name, Belle. She skips out on piano lessons so her older brother Bud can teach her how to shoot. She develops a local reputation as a wonder kid sharpshooter, highly unusual for a young girl at this time, but it will help add to her mythos later in life. And the rebellious streak carries over into her schooling, especially at the private school she's enrolled in. She hates going to Carthage Female Academy, she resents the strict set of rules and the proper behavior drilled into the students. She takes any opportunity she can to push back or skip class, but she also excels at math and other subjects while she's there. She's a walking contradiction, at once fulfilling and exceeding all the expectations placed on her by her parents, her teachers, and society, while also subverting them at every turn. But Belle Shirley is about to have much bigger problems tensions between the Northern Union and the Dixiecrats are rising in the U.S. Secession is in the air. The Shirley family has two major problems. Number one, the entire state of Missouri serves as one of the largest buffer zones between the North and the South. The Missouri Compromise has been nullified, meaning that two new states, Nebraska and Kansas, can enter the Union. How they lean, slavery versus free, stands poised to tip the fragile balance in the U.S. Congress. Because of this, freewheeling Confederate bushwhackers and occupying Union forces batter the area back and forth, demanding loyalty from everyone. It's the opposite of a safe haven. If you live here, you need to pick a side, and fast. Which leads to problem number two. There is no way to sugarcoat this, and we wouldn't anyway, John Shirley is an enslaver, and not only that, he's solidly pro-slavery and pro-Confederacy. As a matter of fact, Bell's brother, Bud, the one that taught her how to shoot, is a member of a pro-Confederacy militia group in Missouri called Quantrill's Raiders. And while in present day you might be deeply ashamed of a son joining what is essentially a white supremacist group, John Shirley couldn't be more proud. Once the Civil War breaks out, Bud quickly enlists in the Confederate Army. While he's away in battle, 
many famous pro-secession outlaws make a stop at the Shirley family home to hide out from roving Northern battalions on their way through Missouri. Belle, ever the rebellious spirit, rubs elbows with the likes of Frank and Jesse James and the Younger Brothers, who will go on to become outlaw legends in their own right in the years to come. She listens as they recount stories of run-ins with the Union Army and gets a first-hand lesson in guerrilla warfare tactics. One can only imagine the sight of a 13-year-old Belle, supposed to be tucked in her bed, secretly listening to tales of adventure and firefights, the excitement she must have felt. As Belle listens to the glorious tales, she closes her eyes. Suddenly, she's standing next to her brother, both dressed in Confederate Army uniforms. They look at each other as they then load their bayonets and then start firing on the advancing Union soldiers. Bud and the rest of the Confederate soldiers cheer as they pick up Belle. They won for the Confederacy. Belle, deep in fantasy, smiles and runs back to her room. As the war of Northern aggression rolls on, though, it's looking more and more each day like siding with the Confederacy in Carthage is not going to bode well for anybody. Northern soldiers quickly move into Bell's hometown and start raiding the place, laying siege to any business or residents loyal to the Confederacy. A lot of the time, their weapon of choice? Fire. It's 1864. A now teenage Bell star watches as the glowing blaze of the burning building fills the night sky. She's torn. She's angry the Union soldiers are destroying her town. But... This particular building is a bad one. A strange sense of relief fills her head as Belle watches her school, the very rigid organization that forces her to act like a proper young lady, burns to ash. As Belle watches, she only wishes Bud could be there to see it. And she wonders, when will she ever get to see the man she idolizes so much again? Unfortunately, by late June of 1864, Belle does see Bud. He now lies in a coffin. During a firefight with Union soldiers in Sarkozy, Missouri, Bud was shot. As Belle stares down at the cold body of her hero, the one person who believed in her, who always had her back, she doesn't weep. Bud wouldn't want her to weep. Bud always said she was too strong to ever cry like the other girls. As his coffin is lowered into the cold Missouri ground to the slow plains of Dixie by a small Confederate battalion, Belle doesn't realize it at the time but she'll be spending the rest of her life trying to find a man half as special as her brother, but will fail miserably every time. For now, though, a bud-sized hole fills Belle's young, fragile heart. Shortly afterward, the Shirley family farmhouse burns down as well. Fearing further tragedy after the loss of Bud, the family picks up and moves to Syene, Texas, just outside of Dallas. Three months later, the entire city of Carthage is burned to the ground by Confederate soldiers trying to drive out the Union Army. So picture this. Your family has just packed up all the belongings that weren't burned in a house fire, loads up the carriage, and travels 723 miles across the country to escape the war. The war that they were totally in favor of and actively encouraged, but, you know, details. This would have taken about a week or so at this time. So you settle down in your new town of Syene, Texas. You head to the local corner store to pick up a few things, some milk, eggs, maybe a copy of that new issue of Wild West Tiger Beat magazine that has Billy the Kid on the cover, and then you run into your crush from back in Missouri. That's exactly what happens to Belle. 
Back in Carthage, she had developed an infatuation with one of Bud's friends, a fellow member of Quantrill's Raiders named Jim Reed. And considering their heavy alliances to the Confederacy, the Reeds also relocated to Syene a few weeks after the Shirleys. This is certainly some kind of sign, right? In 1866, with the war over, an 18-year-old Belle marries Jim Reed, perhaps the last existing reminder of her late brother. But things aren't all wedding bells and merriment for the Shirleys. Belle's father, John's, attempt to establish himself in the real estate market in Texas is less than gangbusters. He tries unsuccessfully to purchase a large hotel in Syene, squanders a bunch of his money on some bad investments, and is quickly forced to return to hog farming. Jim Reed, Belle's new husband, moves in with the Shirleys. John hates him immediately, but allows him to work on the farm in exchange for room and board. And he's pretty terrible at it. The farm life just isn't for the rough and tumble Jim Reed, someone who is known in the Quantrill's Raiders for his hot head, his tendency to get into fights, and his ruthless, violent nature. He quits the farm and briefly tries to get work as a saddle maker in Dallas. But he soon realizes something. It's not just working on a farm that bores him. It's working. He quits that job as well, and he and Belle move back to Missouri alone. Jim spends less and less time with Belle, and more time at the racetrack, betting on horses. He falls in with a half-Cherokee rum runner he meets there named Tom Starr. Hmm, interesting last name, right? I have a feeling that's going to be significant later. And he joins his gang. Jim Reed is now going to make a living as a professional criminal. Reed finds steady income just in time, and in September of 1868, a 20-year-old Belle gives birth to Rosie Lee. She takes to calling her daughter her Little Pearl, and the nickname sticks. A few years later, in 1871, now 23 years old, she also gives birth to their son, Eddie. Pearl and Eddie are Belle's pride and joy. Though, years later, things will sour. So much so that they might be involved in her mysterious murder. But we'll get back to that. Jim Reed starts working with Tom Starr to move whiskey into Cherokee territory, which is super illegal, and also participates in several of their scams and robberies. Eventually, he runs afoul of the law in Missouri for being involved in a counterfeiting operation, and he and Belle flee back to their parents' farm in Syene. John Shirley sets them up with their own house and some land in Texas, but Reed can't resist the siren's call of the criminal underbelly of the Old West. Belle finds out that Jim and his brother Soul have a plan they find that a man named Dick Cravey has $4,000 stashed in a safe on his property. They decide that rustling cattle or working as a farmhand is too small time and plan to rustle Dick Cravey's life savings instead. Who knows what that conversation was like between Bell and Jim as he buckled his holster that morning with his brother waiting for him on the front porch to go commit grand larceny. Sure, Bell is a rebel herself and always romanticized the adventures of the outlaw life but that was before she had two little children to look out for. We can only envision Belle pleading with her husband to reconsider. Let's say the robbery goes well. Then she'll be aiding and abetting a larcenist. And that's the best case scenario. Let's say somebody gets hurt. Jim is putting his entire family in jeopardy and only because he's too lazy to get a real job, she implores him to reconsider. With a breath full of whiskey, he kisses her forehead and promises it'll all go down without a hitch. It doesn't. The Reed brothers end up killing Dick Cravey. Soon after that, 
three brothers are accused of killing another man named Wheeler. Wheeler's brother reports everything he knows about Jim and Soul to the police. And two weeks later, he's found with his tongue cut out. At this point, Bell is actively aiding and abetting not only a serial criminal, but a murderer. And she knows it. But, like it or not, she's been roped into becoming an outlaw along with her husband. The Reed brothers each have a $500 bounty on their heads. So Jim and Belle leave their children with the Shirleys and flee to Choctaw Territory to hide from the police. All is well for a while. Jim even promises that he'll go straight for Belle and be the loving and devoted husband he always promised he would be. But that doesn't last long. In 1873, Jim Reed, along with a few other men, take a retired judge and his wife hostage and rob them of over $30,000, roughly $650,000 today. Shortly afterward, he's picked up by the police for passing off counterfeit bills, and all of his warrants come back to haunt him. He escapes police custody and goes on the run. Belle has had enough. She returns to her parents' farm in Syene. Now 25, Belle shows up to an unexpected welcome from her father. In a bizarre, Wild West intervention of sorts, he grabs her and throws her into a closet. John, the father, says that he won't let her out unless she agrees to turn her life around and leave that rotten Jim Reed for good. Belle doesn't relent. Sitting in the darkness of the closet, with the sound of her children screaming on the other side, Belle refuses to leave Jim. Sure, he's a wanted murderer, but what her father and the world can never understand is that he was her brother Bud's best friend. He's all that she has left of Bud. She can never let go of that. Finally, though, after two weeks, she finally gives in. She agrees to her father's demands, and he lets her out. Soon after, Belle leaves her father's home. She will never see him again. By 1874, Jim Reed has become a true blue American outlaw, wanted in several states and genuinely infamous across the country. So much so that a former member of his gang, John T. Morris, is deputized specifically to track down and capture him. This is precisely what happens. And one day, Morris meets up with Reed under the guise of going riding together. They stop at a saloon to eat lunch when Reed hears the click of a gun. He barely has enough time to upturn the table and run for the door when the crack of gunfire silences the saloon. Jim Reed dies instantly. Bell refuses to ID the body, so Morris can't collect on the bounty. And even though she never got back together with Reed after he fled from the cops for stealing $30,000, a newspaper written at the time of Bell's eventual death later claims to have possession of her personal journal. And the journal indicates that Bell tracked down and killed John T. Morris herself. Is this real? Or is it a fabricated nugget to contribute to a rough and tumble narrative of a bloodthirsty woman hungry for vengeance? More and more partial to the latter. Anyway, it's 1880. A carriage rocks and wobbles over rocky dirt as it rolls through a familiar stretch of land for a 32-year-old Bell Star. She's traveled this road before, many times. She recognizes the patterns and landmarks in the unending, monotonous landscape. It's the way back to Missouri, a path she seems to take every time tragedy strikes. But she no longer has her parents or a husband to weather the trip with. Instead, she's alone. Well, not fully alone. A tiny hand tugs at her sleeve. She looks down at Pearl and Eddie, who are both in tow. 
A widowed mother, run afoul of the law, forced to flee from a life of crime her husband chose for her, pats little Eddie on the head. Pearl is impatient. She stamps her feet on the floor of the carriage. But Belle doesn't mind. In fact, she doesn't mind the trip at all. She loves these tranquil rides through the endless plains. It seems to be the only time she truly can be at peace. You know, alone. It's what's on either side of the road that she dreads. A snap of leather. Belle shakes the reins and the horse speeds up, its hooves knocking the soft earth below with a barely audible pat. Jim Reed is dead. Belle can't trust her father anymore, not after he locked her in a closet for two weeks. The only people she knows, the only people that can help her get back on her feet as a single mother, are the friends her husband made back in Missouri. Belle is going to see Tom Starr, and little does she know, she'll soon meet the love of her life. After returning to Missouri and getting help from Jim Reed's former criminal partner, Tom Starr, Belle Shirley meets his son, Sam Starr. As if shot by Cupid's six-shooter, they immediately fall in love and are married. Belle Shirley, or should we now say Belle Starr, is 32. Sam is 24. Belle certainly had affection for Jim Reed, but nothing like this. Belle is head over boots in love with Sam. The couple, along with Eddie and Pearl, move into a small house in Younger's Bend, nestled inside of Cherokee territory. They're allowed to live there because Sam is part Cherokee. For the first time, Belle feels something she's never felt before. True, unbridled love. Unfortunately, like most relationships in Belle's life, there's a catch. It seems Belle attracts a certain kind of guy. A guy not made for working life. The kind of guy who prefers a life of crime. But Belle was just down this road. It led to pain, suffering, death, and dark claustrophobic closets. Would she ever allow herself and her kids to experience this all over again? Yet again, Sam Starr makes Belle feel a certain way. A certain way she hasn't felt since the days back in Carthage the days when her brother was still alive. Belle takes a deep breath. For Sam, she'll do anything. From their home base in Younger's Bend, Belle and Sam officially break bad and begin to pull off various crimes. They run whiskey. They pull off small robberies. Belle herself masterminds fencing jobs for local thieves. And they're even using their house as a hideout for all sorts of notorious outlaws passing through the area. Is Belle actually enjoying this? Is she having fun? Probably not. It's just a means to an end. To provide for her family and to keep the man she loves. But it doesn't last long. After a few years of Sam and Belle's crime spree, the law catches up with them. But for a pretty mundane reason. Sam and Belle attempt to sell some cattle to a neighbor. When the neighbor points out that the cattle are stolen from nearby ranches, the couple ignores the warning and sells them anyway. So legendary Oklahoma sheriff Bass Reeves comes looking for Sam and Belle, and they're arrested for cattle wrestling. They appear before a judge, are sentenced, Pearl and Eddie are shipped back off to stay with their grandmother, and Belle and Sam spend the next nine months in prison. She's released early for good behavior, and Sam follows shortly afterwards. So here is Belle Starr, a woman much like most women of the time and even many today, pushed and pulled in various directions by the expectations of society as a young girl. 
Then she fled from everything she ever knew during the Civil War, and she was dragged into a life of crime by her husband, saddled with children, and widowed. Finally, she's pulled into another criminal operation by her new husband and serves nine months of hard time for it. It's safe to say that this was not the life she signed up for. But here's the kicker. Upon getting out of prison, she is full-on famous. Word travels fast in the Old West, and Belle is in the newspapers. She's getting looks when she goes out. She's got the attention of the country's most notorious outlaws. Everybody knows who she is. You can't ask for this type of publicity, and she didn't. As time goes on, she gains a reputation as a ruthless, sharp-shooting wild card in the papers. In reality, she's just kind of going through the motions. The less control she has over her life, the more famous she gets, and the more people view her as cunning and a criminal mastermind. She's labeled the bandit queen, the quote, female Jesse James. As Belle reads her name in the paper, she does not smile. She doesn't clip it and hang it on the wall. She feels something the opposite that most outlaws feel when seeing their names in print, shame. Belle never asked for this. Sure, she has a rebellious streak, but a world-renowned criminal is not what she thought her claim to fame would be. But does this shame stop her? With all this notoriety, all the prying eyes, all the press coverage, certainly she lays low and tries to avoid more prison time. Well, no. Shortly after getting out of jail, a man named Jim Middleton, a friend of Belle's late first husband, Jim Reed, appears at the house in Younger's Bend. He's wanted for murder and looking for a place to hide. Out of respect to her late husband, Belle convinces Sam to let him in. Jim Middleton lives with Sam, Belle, Pearl, and Eddie for several months, thinking it's the perfect refuge from the police outside of Cherokee territory. That is, until officers from nearby Lamar County get special permission from the Cherokee police in the area to enter the land and raid Sam and Belle's farm. Luckily for John Middleton, he's not home at the time. When he returns, he pleads with Belle to help him escape. Belle hatches a plan. She, Pearl, and Eddie will take a covered wagon and travel to visit some family in Arkansas. Middleton will hide in the wagon and escape once they're clear of the authorities that are looking for them. Middleton loves the plan. The wagon departs, and when the coast is clear, Middleton sets out on his own. Belle gives him a Colt 45 handgun, but Pearl refuses to hand over her horse to him. So Belle sends Eddie to a nearby town to buy a horse for the man. Eddie returns with a half-blind, malnourished mare. It'll have to be good enough. John Middleton's body is found days later along with the horse. He didn't make it out of the wilderness. Authorities also find the handgun given to him by Belle, and they're able to eventually tie it back to her. Not only that, but the mare that Eddie purchased turned out to be stolen, not by him. He actually genuinely purchased it. It was stolen by the person he bought it from. And that's about par for the course when it comes to this family's luck. Bell's arrested and hauled to Fort Smith, but the charges are quickly dropped. However, hundreds of townspeople flock to the jailhouse to get a glimpse of the so-called bandit queen. During the fiasco, Bell punches out a reporter she accuses of writing lies about her in the papers. Of course, this punching incident produces more headlines about the infamous female Jesse James. But all of this increased fame has definitely put a target on her back. The local authorities in counties across the country are aware of her. 
she can't go anywhere now without tripping some alarms. In fact, the authorities back in Younger's Bend are looking for her, but not for the reason you might think. You see, before leaving Fort Smith, Bella receives a message from the Cherokee police. Sam Starr, her husband, is a wanted man. Again. In the midst of running another one of his whiskey-moving operations, he was shot and captured by the police. But then, instead of cooperating, he got loose and killed all the guards who had detained him. He was on the run and wanted for murder. Authorities want Bell to track down Sam and convince him to turn himself in. So she does. She heads back to Younger's Bend, goes to a hideaway in the hills that only the two of them know about, finds Sam shot in the side but alive, and reasons with him. He might go to prison for murder, but if he doesn't turn himself in, he'll die out here, whether by the gunshot or the eventual posse that will track him down. Sam agrees. He surrenders and is scheduled to stand trial in February of 1887. Except he never makes it. It's Christmas time, 1886, and Sam Starr is still awaiting trial. A band on stage plunks out holiday standards as a crowd of people dances. It's a party. Whiskey flows freely among the partygoers, courtesy of Sam and Belle, now 39. A perk of the rum running life. Belle and Sam spin and dip to the music between the pops and crackles of alcohol bottles and party streamers. Candlelight glints through the confetti that rains down on them as Belle hikes up her dress and moves in time with her husband. Sam Starr might be going to prison, or worse, but they're going to live it up until then. Tonight, they're going to party like it's 1899. A man with a determined look on his face approaches Sam through the flurry of dancers. He yells something into his ear, but Belle can't hear it over the double-time rhythm coming from the stage. Who is that? Something shines at the man's hip in the candlelight of the party. It's a gun. The band stumbles to a stop, and people in the crowd gasp and back away as the man raises the revolver. It's Sam's cousin, Frank, and he's accusing Sam of being part of a group of men who robbed him four months ago. He's come to collect his pound of flesh. The sounds of clinking glasses, boots in the dirt, and the band are gone now. Bell can hear everything Frank says. And Sam, too. Their argument gets heated. A duel is suggested. They'll stand back to back, take 10 steps, turn and fire. Just like you've seen in the movies. So the two cousins, despite Bell's protests, commence a duel. When the 10th step is counted, the two men spin around. Two quick cracks of gunfire bite through the silence of the party, one right after the other the deafening sound shaking Belle to her core before she's even able to register what's happened. Frank's hand flies to his neck and pulls away covered in blood. Sam does the same with his gut. They're already both mortally wounded, but it's not done yet. Frank drops to his knees and fires two more times. One gets Sam in the chest, and the other strikes a nearby 12-year-old boy, killing him instantly. With his final two shots out, Frank thuds, face down on the ground, dead. Frank hit Sam twice, but Sam is still standing. He staggers. Bell runs to his side. He stumbles to a nearby tree and holds himself up as he bleeds out. Bell watches as the only man she ever truly loved, the man she leapt into a life of crime for, dies standing on his feet. 
A few days later, Belle Star buries Sam. But in the same way she refused to cry for her brother, she doesn't shed a tear for Sam. She will not show weakness. Inside, she is torn to shreds. She feels like she's losing her family all over again. She must be brave. She must soldier on. But the bad news isn't over for her. She's losing her house. She lives in Cherokee territory, and without Sam's Cherokee blood, she's no longer allowed to stay there. She has to leave. Just like she had before, Belle leans on her new friends, the only friends she has left in this world, a network of criminals and outlaws who would pass through Younger's Bend after hearing the legends about the notorious bandit queen. She meets Jim July, another relative of Sam Starr's with native blood. She's got nothing in common with this guy. He's nothing like Sam. But there's not a whole lot of time, and he'll have to do. In 1884, Belle marries Jim July out of convenience and is able to keep her property in Younger's Bend. The arrangement calls for Belle to stay around the property, managing it while Jim July gets to go off and basically do whatever he wants. It's a sham marriage. Jim gallivants with the town's women while Belle silently grieves for Sam at home. This is where the drama of Belle's life really starts to come to a head. Enter Edgar Watson. He and his wife show up on Belle's doorstep, looking to rent some of her land to live on. Belle happily agrees. Money's starting to dry up, but one of the stipulations for getting to keep her land is that she has to lie low and avoid trouble with the law. Becoming a landlord seems like a relatively innocent way to make a living. So the Watsons shack up on Belle's land. At first, everything goes well. Belle even befriends the wife and they frequently get talking together. That's when she casually lets slip that Edgar Watson is wanted for a murder in Florida and they're hiding out here to avoid authorities. This changes everything for Belle. She needs to go straight. She needs to stay out of trouble. She's played this game before, harboring fugitives, fool me once. She cannot get sucked back into a life she never asked for by someone else ever again. So she does the only thing she can do. She evicts the Watson couple and kicks them off her property. Edgar Watson is livid. He storms away from Belle's property, cursing and swearing revenge under his breath. So that's taken care of. But then there's Jim July. The two try to steer clear of each other, for the most part. But there are still times when the couple gets into altercations. They're completely incompatible which might not be such a big deal if they can just avoid each other and live separate lives. Except for whatever reason, Jim July secretly offers a friend $200 to kill Belle. He doesn't explain why. The friend doesn't take him up on the offer, but there's a possibility he might have approached someone else for reasons we'll soon get into. In addition to her landlord and marriage problems, Belle is also openly feuding with both of her now adult children. And to be honest, They've both got plenty of reasons to resent their mother. First, there's Pearl. In a strange Wild West soap opera twist, while married to Jim July, Belle falls in love with a local man, only to find out that he and Pearl, of all people, are secretly dating. When the man approaches Belle asking for permission to marry Pearl, Belle makes up a story about how Pearl is already married. This temporarily puts Pearl's relationship with the man on the rocks until they figure out Belle's trickery and get married anyway, leaving Belle's house and moving in with the man's parents. Then, shortly after, Pearl gets pregnant and gives birth to a baby daughter named Flossie. 
Upon finding out about Flossie, Belle tries to convince Pearl to put her up for adoption. When Pearl refuses, Belle lures her back to the house by telling her that her brother Eddie has been shot and he will likely die. Whenever Pearl arrives, Belle secretly sends a message back to the man's parents, convincing them to put Flossie up for adoption, which they briefly do. When Pearl discovers this, she rushes back home and is able to get Flossie back, but she never forgives Belle for this. Now, the part about Eddie getting shot isn't a lie. He really did get shot during an attempted horse theft, but he survives. However, he's set to stand trial for the theft and appeals to his mother to help pay for a lawyer. She refuses. She wants nothing to do with it. Belle left that life behind, and she won't get dragged into it to help another man, even if it is her own son. Eddie is convicted and goes to jail for a bit, and he too leaves Younger's Bend cursing his mother's name. Suddenly, Belle's biggest problems aren't out on the road, but at home. Jim July, the husband she can't stand, who may or may not have hired someone to kill her, Edgar Wilson, the murderer who she evicted off her land, the son and daughter who she betrayed, it seems the characters in Belle's life each have a motive to see her shot, which finally brings us to the last few days of the bandit queen's life. It's February, 1889, Bellstar, now 41, accompanies her grumbling husband of convenience as he makes his way to Fort Smith for his own horse theft trial. Just like Bell's son, Eddie, he had been caught stealing a horse and also like him, Bell refused to help Jim July pay for a lawyer. Throw in the fact that he had been recently caught sleeping with a girl from a nearby town, which despite their marriage not being what you'd exactly call legitimate, caused Bell to lash out with a violent, jealous outburst. Belle goes halfway with Jim and then turns around to head home. On the way back, she stops in town and has lunch. Later, she visits friends and goes out for a night of dinner, drinks, and conversation. That's when she makes her final trip home, the one that she never completes. While in town, she gets word that Eddie's at the house of a nearby acquaintance. She tries to meet up with him there, but he leaves before she arrives. Also, by sheer coincidence, Edgar Watson happens to be in town and sees her ride by on horseback. He and his wife have been staying in a shack just a few miles from the Star Farm after Belle evicted them. Even Pearl is somewhere in town, though no one is exactly sure where. This brings us back to the opening. Belle is traveling by horse when she is shot in the back as she lays there bleeding out with the gunman's shotgun in her face. It's safe to say that the glean of recognition fills her eyes as she stares at the familiar face about to pull the trigger. But Belle's eyes look past the gunman into the distance. She sees two more familiar faces, faces that smile at her with warmth, the smiles of home. Her brother Bud and her husband, Sam, they're there, they've been waiting for her. Suddenly, something falls from Belle's eye, something she has refused to allow for so long a single tear. It's time. But who was it? Was it Edgar Watson? Belle had learned his dark past and wouldn't let him rent housing from her because of it. After years of running away, did holding her ground lead to Belle's downfall? Or does Jim July make a better suspect? He clearly wanted to be free of his obligations to Belle so he could pursue other women. And he also had literally hired someone to kill her once. Maybe it was Eddie. He threatened her when he left Younger's Bend and never forgot her lack of support when he went to trial for stealing a horse. 
And what about Pearl? Her relationship with her mom was never the same after Belle tried to get rid of Flossie. Perhaps her mother's disdain was too much to bear any longer. Well, there is one piece of evidence. Horse tracks are found leading from the scene of the crime all the way back to Edgar Watson's shack. That seems pretty fishy. Jim July and Eddie are deputized and head to the shack to arrest Edgar Watson. At the last minute, for reasons nobody can explain, Eddie refuses to arrest the man. He leaves the property and Jim July is forced to take him into custody alone. Edgar Watson is put on trial for the murder, but is ultimately released after the court rules that all evidence against him is circumstantial. The murder remains unsolved to this day. Belle Starr's story slowly morphs into the stuff of legends, with multiple books being written about her, and her death has been debated by generations of historians. But the story of Belle Starr carries on after her death with her children. For instance, how did Eddie Reed end up paying for a lawyer in his horse trial theft after Belle refused? Pearl, who had taken up career as a sex worker in the years since disowning her mother, used a portion of her earnings to pay for his legal counsel. Because of this event, Pearl and Eddie actually became closer than they ever had been before. After their mother's death, they remained close. And they also capitalized off the fame of their deceased mother, the late Great Bandit Queen. In 1892, Eddie receives a presidential pardon for his crime of horse theft based on the fame of Bell Star and eventually becomes a deputy at Fort Smith, where his own parents used to go to stand trial. He spends the rest of his life hunting outlaws like his father until he dies in a saloon fight in 1896. Pearl realizes she has a massive opportunity to profit off of her mother's fame and changes her name from Pearl Reed to Pearl Star. She rebrands herself as the daughter of the bandit queen and opens up a massively successful brothel. Her business continues on successfully until prostitution is outlawed in Arkansas during World War I. She's arrested for refusing to close down her business, but makes a deal with the authorities to be freed as long as she leaves town. She dies in Arizona in 1925. There is one last little wrinkle, though. As we said, Pearl and Eddie remained close throughout their lives. And it was because of that, years later, Pearl's daughter Flossie claims that her mother had confided with her on several occasions that Eddie told her he had killed their mother. But then again, Flossie could also be trying to capitalize off the star name to get a little attention, just like everybody else. So where does that leave the legacy of Belle Star? It's not exactly a cut-and-dry one. She was heralded as a ruthless outlaw in her time alongside the likes of Jesse James, Billy the Kid, and Butch Cassidy. After death, she was immortalized as something like a folk hero. But neither are exactly true. In reality, she was a woman that seemed caught in a slipstream of bad fortune, poor decisions, and a series of men who dictated the direction of her life almost from birth until death a victim of circumstance in brutal times filled with human cruelty and outdated gender roles and sexism as the status quo. But that's not exactly right either. Multiple sources throughout the intervening years after her death pegged Bell Star as the mastermind behind the criminal operations, the whiskey running, the fence scene, and the robberies carried out by her, Sam Starr, and his criminal buddies. There was even an incident once where she was arrested for riding alongside a gang of outlaws during a robbery, dressed like a man so she wouldn't stick out. That's at least one piece of evidence that she was directly involved in heists and rum running without anyone knowing it because she was in disguise. How much of the legend of Bellstar was real? 
How much of it was exaggerated in the frenzy of press publications anxious to be the first to print stories about a genuine female outlaw, a rare and paper-selling commodity at the time? The fact that who Bellstar really was as a person gets lost in the sensational story of the bandit queen speaks to the difficult position in which she existed. Her father, all her husbands, society, they all had expectations of what she was supposed to be. Did she harness and capitalize on the benefits of notoriety in the end? Or in us trying to figure out who pulled the trigger, are we missing the point that Belle's identity died long before the gun fired? Belle lived in a bleak time during human history that was even bleaker for women. The idea that she needed to allow others to dictate every aspect of her life and where she was going had been beaten into her for her first 13 years. So when the Civil War came around and changed everything about that dynamic, she had no direction. So she followed the lead of the men in her life, at least in the beginning, and for a long time after that. But the real turning point here seems to be when she got out of prison. After nine months in jail, she came out realizing that she needed to take her life into her own hands. And it seems that she certainly tried. Did she succeed? Or had she already been too far gone in a life lost at sea with the expectations of others? Much like a lot of the story, we'll never truly know. One thing to consider, though. When she was buried, her gravestone featured an image of a horse, a symbol of freedom, along with the inscription, Shed not for her the bitter tear, nor give the heart to vain regret. Tis but the casket that lies here, the gem that fills it sparkles yet. Bellstar spent a life in pursuit of freedom and independence against massive adversity and tragedy. That's a freedom in and of itself, and a great lesson to everyone for how to live. Just maybe not the murder and robbery stuff. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Andrew Price. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Mm-hmm.